Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, reporter Jackie Valley and photographer Jeff Scheid visit an elementary school to look at how the pandemic has changed things, from staffing issues to learning loss and more. Then, reporter Janelle Calderon talks with Professor Edwin O, the lead of the UNLV Wastewater Surveillance Program, about looking at wastewater to tell what's going on with COVID variants and where outbreaks are happening. At the end of the show, I sit down with reporter Sean Galanka to talk about automatic voter registration and how it's changed the landscape of registered voters in Nevada. All right, and so I am here with education reporter Jackie Valley and photographer Jeff Scheid. You guys recently visited a school, Lamy G. Heard Elementary School, and it, it's one of the first schools you've actually visited since the pandemic started, right? Yeah, so we've done some interviews at schools and been outside when schools reopened, but this was the first significant time we've spent inside a school since the beginning of the pandemic, I'd say. What was it looking like, Jeff? How has it changed in the, in the last two years? I found it that it, it, the kids seemed very excited. And one of the examples in, that I noticed that when they're walking to school, it just got back to normal. Like I have a photo of the boys bunched together and they're kind of arm in arm, bringing back those friendships. And I think that's what we started noticing when we started that day. And then also all gets together outside and does a little pep rally, so to speak. And, and at the end, when they had the announce that school was going to be breaking for five more days, no one clapped. Mm. And, and I think they're more in shock because I think there's it's just such a challenging time for these students. Uh, I liked it when we came back because it was harder to like learn stuff in online education and I would like to see my friends. I felt a little bit better when we came back because online school was like really hard and while you were at home, I got really distracted. So tell me about some of those challenges that they've been facing, not only as students, but just as a school in general, Jackie. Yeah, so I would say it's a pretty dynamic time in the education world right now because they're dealing with another COVID surge, this time the Omicron variant. And so it's been a struggle with just staffing. There's high student absence numbers as well as teachers out. On the day we visited, the single school had 12 staff members out, six of whom were classroom teachers. A lot of teachers, a lot of children dropped, you know what I mean, for a week, two weeks. And it's gone from a few at the beginning to five, now to seven. And they don't have lots of substitute teachers available, so they're really trying to plug those classroom holes in creative solutions. So for instance, we walked in one classroom that had about 60 students of fourth graders sitting together with one teacher who was essentially leading two classes in lieu of having a a substitute teacher there. So that's one struggle. And the, the principal talked about how she gets up at five in the morning to begin going through text messages, emails to figure out which staff members are going to be absent for the day and planning a staffing inside the school. So how is this affecting the students? What's that like? Yeah, well, uh, the students, there was a, a high percentage of students absent that day as well. I think there was like 20% of students were gone on that specific day we visited. And then there was a separate 9% of students who were counted as a 
attending, but were actually doing temporary distance learning. Mm. So they had been excluded from class probably for exposure or some other reason. So that's a dynamic. That's different. And I think that's the theme we heard from staff at the school and even students themselves was there was a lot of hoopla about how, yay, it's wonderful. We're going back to school full time in person this year. But the reality is it's, it's not normal. We're however many years in and we're still not. I think we, it's true to say that we came back thinking it would be just like it was before and it has not been just like it was before. And there are more disruptions right now because of COVID. And that's just on the operational side, like we haven't even touched on all the academic struggles. Jeff, I just wanted to know your perspective as the photographer watching all these students. You have these bigger class sizes because there's not enough teachers in some instances, but there's less kids in the school. What are you seeing? Well, there's there's a photo that I took that you just see on a kid's face here he's masked and what they're doing and, and because of the lighting start, they're turning off all the lights. And there's this one kid and I shot a real low light and you can just see it. He's got his hand on his face. And you just see it in his eyes with his mask on, and it just—it just seems like he's really wore out. And I, I think there's sometimes just by photographing the eyes of somebody, especially during a pandemic, you can really read a lot into it. The kids are very accommodating. You know, walking through the hallway, they're not running, they're not skipping. It's very well controlled. I think it's just students are listening to their teachers and I think they're just going from one class to the next. They look at me and give me a little wave and stuff like that. But in the past, you may have kids starting to talk in the hallway and chatting with me and things like that. But I think they're just very focused about going from one class to another and doing what's what they are told. Yeah, I think the students are very flexible, it seems like. And when we talked to several students and they didn't have too many gripes, surprisingly, I, I thought it was interesting. The principal pointed out to me some observations she had seen just on the playground. She said when students came back, some you could tell like had lacked physical activity for like the preceding year and they'd get out of breath when they were running. And so she's watched those skills and that energy level come back over the course of the school year so far. And I thought that was a really poignant observation. I, I remember one of the students that Jackie interviewed a 10 year old boy. And I think the question was about mental illness and mental issues. And it, it struck me how deep his conversation was for a 10 year old talking about mental illness. It's sad that this is happening, but it's good that they're being able to say, hey, I have a problem here, which is really important. It was a little hard because while I was isolated because my family, we got like COVID, so we had to isolate for a few days. So me being isolated right before I come back to school kind of messed up my mental being. Mm. So it was kind of hard to make friends again. And it, it also like broke down because I was really sad about that because I lost a lot of friends that I really liked. Mm. Just because you hadn't seen them for a while? Yeah. Jackie, we also talked about the learning part. So they're dealing with either mental illness or the stress of the pandemic over the past two years. How is that impacting them academically? Yeah, the, the staff at Lomi G. Heard Elementary School, which is actually a magnet school, they were pretty blunt about it. They said they're dealing with quite a few academic slides. Uh, a lot of students are not on grade level. Um, they're seeing particular 
challenges in the upper grades, fourth and fifth, um, especially when it comes to reading. And I think it's not really surprising when you consider that the pandemic would have started when they were in first or second grade. And so they missed some of those really pivotal reading learning years. They had to institute this whole reading program because they noticed that fourth and fifth graders were still struggling to read some of the most common words. The principal put it pretty bluntly to me saying they're desperately hurting. I would add that as much as it's scary, and that's a word that some of the teachers used, they all say that kids are resilient and that when you can get more books in their hands and get them reading as much during the day as possible, that they think that these academic slides can be mitigated over time. All right. Well, Jackie and Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And we'll hopefully hear some more of your reporting soon. All right. Thanks, Joey. Well, shifting from one topic education to a much different topic now, poop. We all do it, but what can it tell us about COVID-19? Reporter Janelle Calderon went to UNLV to talk to Professor Edwin O, the lead of the UNLV Wastewater Surveillance Program, to discuss how sewage can give us a better understanding of the coronavirus, what communities it's affecting, what kind of variants Las Vegas could be facing, and more. last two years we, we've uh, been working with a number of different folks in southern Nevada to get this wastewater surveillance program up and running primarily because of COVID and also the potential for um, so much more. And how did you come up with looking at water and COVID? Right, right, right. <laughs> Serendipity. I was uh, speaking with Southern Nevada Water Authority, Dr. Dan Garrity and Dr. Katarina Papp, and, and both of them really helped catalyze a lot of ideas that, that we're currently chasing. Showing me, and the group here, was that they could detect virus within sewage. And naturally, I was um, thinking that, wow, if you can detect um, this viral material from sewage, we can sequence it. We can figure out what type of variants are emerging and evolving. And boy, was I wrong. Um, this was the naive uh, impression that, that I think I had from the get-go. And then after months of failure, of not being able to fully understand the nature of sewage, that was really what was required for us to get better at what we were doing. Sewage is such a harsh environment for any organism to survive in. And it's definitely a very different environment from the nasal cavity where most of us are tested. Mm -hmm. So going from the nasal cavity to a sewage pipe and collecting fluid, while conceptually might be very similar, in practice, it's a whole different science. And, and, and we've had to take at least six months to figure out how we could optimize our protocols to, to swab the sewers. And, and be able to understand what genomes might be present. What, what is the process? So, so there, there are at least two different levels that, that we can run this type of surveillance program. You and I, anything that we consume will potentially end up in some form of waste. And SARS-CoV-2 is a virus that does end up in fecal matter. 
And because it ends up in fecal matter, it will go into sewage. And so this sewage will eventually flow in many um, jurisdictions in either a city or a county into a wastewater treatment plant. At that point, we can collect that sewage and run our analysis. We can take that, that fluid and then extract out nucleic acids. That's one level of uh, resolution. We can be a lot finer in our analysis by going to manholes that are closer to a building, closer to a community, so as to isolate that community and better understand the health of that community versus the health of the city. What neighborhoods have you seen the most fire load? Has it been consistent the whole time? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's varied. The trends that we observe across most of the neighborhoods, across many of the jurisdictions, the city of Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, Baldur cities, <laughs> the trends have been um, very, very similar. I think what's different is oftentimes which communities will spike first. And what we have seen, fortunately or unfortunately, is that when, when new, new variants show up, we're more likely to find these variants in sewage that comes from the strip. And we're, we're not entirely surprised. We, we have a city here that's built on tourism. And so the purpose of this program isn't to close down businesses or close down the strip. The, the purpose here is to be able to get that type of intelligence so that we know whether we need to start deploying more testing sites to certain zip codes. We need to uh, deploy certain uh, messaging so that we can help visitors better understand what's going on here. So a few weeks ago, you detected COVID variants even before they're reported right. in town. So what's your reaction when you see that? Yeah, mixed because I, I feel that the system is, is doing what it needs to do. I feel a little disappointed sometimes when I see these variants because it means potentially that we're going to start seeing viral concentrations go up. And judging by how some of these variants have impacted other countries, we have a sense of what might happen. It's always important to understand the city and, and state that you live in. When you run these comparisons to other places that did better or did worse, for example, the percent of seniors in, in Southern Nevada in Clark County is something like 18-19%. If you contrast that with, let's say, a city in Dubai, like Dubai, or South Africa, where the percent of seniors is 1-2-3%, you're going to see a very, potentially a very different response to, to a variant that's highly transmissible. So I, I guess when we start looking at our samples and we see these new variants emerge, we know that we have to pick up our game because this is the time when we have to be especially alert about how this variant is now going to be transmitted in our community. Yeah, and what do you do when you do find a variant? Yeah, when Omicron first showed up on December the 7th, it was at very, very low levels coming in from the strip. At that point, we were, um, the first thing that we did was we wanted to better understand whether um, this variant was present at our other wastewater treatment plants. And the answer was no. And the answer continued to be no for at least the next 
14 days or so. And we could see Omicron just um, simply uh, take over various communities. For example, in one community on December the 20th, we saw Omicron make up maybe 15-20% of the community on December 20th. Fast forward one week later, in seven days, 96% of all genomes was uh, made up of Omicron. So you, you, you can see how quickly a variant like this can take over an entire community. And, and we didn't even have to test a single person. How do you think we can use wastewater testing in the future? Is mm. it here to stay? Is it? Yeah, yeah. If you can predict a viral outbreak, if you can predict mental health issues, if you can predict cancer, would you want to do that? Because this surveillance program can provide that type of information. Whatever you consume ends up in fecal matter or ends up being discharged. And if this shows up in sewage, which oftentimes it does, we can get a pulse of that community. We can be able to tell you whether or not uh, a certain community has 20% of colon cancer or 30% of the community has colon cancer. These biomarkers can help predict what public health resources are going to be more important. So I think this type of program will in fact expand over time to be able to address some of these other important questions that will be relevant when, when COVID um, becomes endemic. It evolves into something else other than what it is now with the high death rates. Nevada has seen some dramatic changes in the last two years in both how many people are registered to vote and what party they align with. Much of that can be traced back to a recent policy change called automatic voter registration. Here's Joey and reporter Sean Galanka with more. All right. Well, I'm here with reporter Sean Galanka, also a data guru. Uh, and you've been doing a lot of a lot of work looking into uh, elections and stuff. And you recently did a story on AVR or automatic voter registration. So I guess we will just start with explaining what automatic voter registration is. Yeah, so before automatic voter registration, Nevada had this opt-in process where maybe you're at the DMV, you can choose to register as a voter through the DMV, but you're choosing to do that. Whereas now with AVR, you're basically automatically registered to vote when you do any sort of DMV transaction. Maybe you're updating your address, maybe you're getting a new ID, and that can even be done through an online transaction on the My DMV portal. And so basically unless you specifically choose to opt out of the voter registration process, you will be automatically registered to vote through a DMV transaction. And there's another form that you can fill out to select a party affiliation. But if you don't do that, then you're automatically registered as a nonpartisan. So have, have there been any difficulties implementing this, this new system? Yeah, so there was one issue that began um, back in August 2020, where voters who were using the My DMV portal online and didn't select the party affiliation box, had their party affiliation switched to other. So in total, before this was resolved, it affected about 44,000 people. A few thousand of those people have already been cleaned off the voter rolls, maybe because we found out that they moved to another state or something like that. And the remainder of those people have been notified by their county clerk of the change to their party affiliation. So 
they have some time before the next primary election in June to change back to a different party or to stay as other. With automatically registering people to vote, I'm assuming there are a lot more people now registered to vote. How much has that increased by? December 2021, we're at right around 1.85 million voters. Going back to December 2019, it was about 300,000 less voters. And that was the month right before AVR was implemented. Obviously, there are some other things that influence that change. We had same day voter registration where voters are able to register right on election day during the 2020 election. The 2020 election also just saw a lot more political engagement. So there were a lot more people choosing to be registered to vote. But clearly, automatic voter registration has been effective in, in adding people to the voter rolls. So far, it has added about 320,000 new voters to the state's voter rolls through its first two years. And so with those increase in registered voters, are we also seeing an increase in people actually voting or are these people that are getting registered to vote just getting registered and then not voting? So even even if the turnout percentage remained the same, we would see an increase in people voting. We did see an increase in turnout percentage from the 2018 to 2020 election. And from the 2016 to 2020 election, obviously, it's difficult to compare a midterm and a presidential election because people do tend to turn out at a higher rate during a presidential election. But we did see a pretty significant increase. And not all of that is necessarily attributable to AVR. I spoke with people who said people were just more politically engaged, our current political climate in the U.S. And and that's what we saw in 2020. But looking ahead, some of our our big registrars in, in Clark County and in Washoe County, they expect that turnout is going to remain high going into the next midterm elections in 2022. What does this mean for political parties? Are, are they seeing less people? Yeah. So, I mean, just with those 320,000 new voters, about 60% or so of all of those new voters added through AVR have been registered as nonpartisans by default. Mm-hmm. So when you have so many new voters registering as nonpartisan, it's bringing down each major party share of all voters. And, and so in that time, just this past August, we saw non-major party voters which is just anyone that isn't registered as a Republican or a Democrat, we saw those people overtake Democrats and Republicans in terms of the share of registered voters in the state. So those non-majors now make up a plurality of voters in Nevada. What is that breakdown uh, between Republicans, Democrats, and nonpartisans? So the latest numbers for December 2021, Democrats are at about 34%, Republicans at about 30%. When looking at non-majors as a whole, that's a little over 36%. And and, and when we're looking at the, the nonpartisan, I, th- I think it's interesting, right? Because they say that they don't, you know, they're not affiliated with Democrats or Republicans. But is there a way that they tend to vote? Are, are a lot of nonpartisans voting for Democrats? Or a lot of nonpartisans voting for Republicans? Is it hard to tell? Yeah, I think it is really difficult to tell. They do tend to to go both ways. As a pollster, Mark Melman, who do a poll for the Nevada Independent in September, said a lot of those nonpartisans are are really closet partisans who who do tend to vote a specific way with each election. Well, the truth is, if you look at those uh, nonpartisan registrants, the reality is some are between 75 and 85 percent of them are really closet partisans. They don't want to identify themselves as Democrats or Republicans. They don't want to register as Democrats or Republicans. But in fact, for all intents and purposes, they behave just like Democrats who are registered as Democrats or just like Republicans who are registered as Republicans. So they're really partisans that, that are to some extent masquerading 
as independents when they sign their registration form. There's a few who are genuinely conflicted. There's a small number who really are really on both sides, swing voters. It could really go either way. There's some number of people who are really just ill-informed, disengaged, disenchanted, don't like either party, uh, don't like any party, and are really disengaged from the process as well. So there's a mix of those other people. But the bulk, the overwhelming majority of these nonpartisan registrants are actually just partisans who don't want to take a party label. One of the Nevada independents polls from September found that a large chunk of those people that are nonpartisans do tend to identify with one of the major parties. What is the opposition to automatic voter registration? Yeah, so there have been concerns raised by some Republicans in the legislature, by former attorney general and the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, Adam Laxalt, that this process allows non-citizens to be added onto the voter roll because there aren't really enough back-end checks and balances to keep those people off the voter rolls. But really, AVR hasn't changed anything about those checks and balances. And, and there are systems in place to prevent those people from being registered. There are questions on the DMV form about whether somebody is a citizen. And, and there are continuous checks. It's, it's a system called ERIC, which stands for Electronic Registration Information Center. This is a system used by more than 30 states, which basically allows different states to compare voter rolls to see, oh, maybe one person registered in Texas in 2005, and now they registered in Nevada in 2019. So now Texas can clean that person off their voter roll because Nevada can clearly see that that person is living in, in a new state. Yeah. And then the last thing before we wrap up, is it going to change moving forward? Are we going to see automatic voter registration change uh, in the coming years? Yeah. So just this past legislative session, the, the legislature did approve an expansion of AVR beginning in 2024 that will apply the system to different state agencies. So the welfare system or Department of Health and Human Services. Now, if somebody has an interaction with one of those divisions of the state government, they will also go through this AVR process. Proponents of this legislation, of this measure, this expansion of AVR, have said that this will create another check in the system where you can compare how different people are, are being registered and, and where they might be appearing on voter lists in the state. And the other element that'll, that'll start in 2024 is Nevada is moving from a bottom-up voter registration system to a top-down state-led system. So currently, voters are registered through a county and that list then goes to the state where the state compares different counties lists against each other. But beginning in 2024 with this top down system, voters will be registered through the state and that information will then be filtered down to the county. So it's more of a centralized uh, system. All right, cool. Well, before we wrap up, you and I have both said the words automatic voter registration uh, <laughs> a lot, many times. Can you say it three times fast for me? Automatic voter registration, automatic voter registration, automatic voter registration. <laughs> Very good. All right. It is a mouthful, though. <laughs> it is. It is. All right, Sean. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast this week, and we'll hear more from you soon. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Jackie Valley, Jeff Scheid, Edwin O, Janelle Calderon, and Sean Galanka for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. 
If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, techniques for focusing my energy on not becoming possessed by Zibbledy Boop, the audio editing demon, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Welcome to Indie Matters. Oh, I wasn't ready. Oh, let's do that again. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.